Good morning, class! For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Almost Presidents podcast. So I'm joined today by two special guests to talk about a historic day. If you like history podcasting or just great radio, you look forward to this day. It happens twice a year. This time it came around on November 19th. The godfather of history, perhaps a god himself, Dan Carlin, dropped a six and a half hour episode of Hardcore History after perhaps one of the most badass mic drops I've ever seen on X. I don't know if you guys saw this. But he posted this vague tweet saying that he'll be back soon, kind of like an Arnold Schwarzenegger in the helicopter, I'll be back. And somebody commented saying, I'm excited. This is perfect timing because I have a long drive to see my family. And Carlin responded to this saying, I hope it's a really long drive. (laughs) And six and a half hours. So he definitely uh, made that a meaningful trip for that guy and several meaningful trips for, for me at least going back and forth to work. So at this point, I'd like to bring in my guests. So we have Dan Carlin, super fan Mike, who apparently um, is trying to flex on us by saying that he listened to this episode twice, which I hate math, but that's 13 hours of Carlin. So good for you. And as, of course, uh, Chris as well, who you might know from the great hand poke tattoo art that he does on his Instagram, Cowbell Pokes. He's also done a lot of great art for us in the past. So first of all, guys, how are you? And uh, what did you think of the finale to Dan Carlin's Twilight of the Ace here? Well, thanks for having us, Ryan. And uh, I just wanted to say real quick, it is funny that Dan was so self-aware about that. Uh, like he, he knows the, the length of his episodes and um, usually you need to be in a nice car ride or isolated environment to pay attention. So I think that's, that's a really nice little Easter egg he did there. But I'm doing great. Winter's upon us. It was a really nice treat for him to drop that. I think overall... I think we said this last time we talked about it, but it's one of those uh, topics where with all these names, you get lost a little bit. And uh, so you kind of just have to pick out the the descriptive quotes and sort of the bigger themes and and don't (laughs) don't worry about, you know, following each Harold and Henry and and whoever like that. But I I did really enjoy it. There were some things that stuck out to me that uh, I'll definitely bring up. Yeah, I... First off, I'm doing pretty good. I, I, I already chopped my tree down last weekend, so that's all up, ready to go. Oh, wow. Yeah. We're recording uh, this on December 2nd, folks. <laughs> good for you. Yeah, so it's almost a week old already. It's six days old. But no, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the podcast, I, I mean, like you said, well, truth be told, it, well, I didn't do the full 13. I probably did like 10 or 11. I couldn't, I couldn't get through the whole second round, but... I had to listen to it the second time because I found that this was not as linear as I felt as very fairly disjointed where like he'd be on one particular topic and then talk about that and then talk about something completely separate and try to tie it in somehow. So I had to kind of re-listen to it back. But having said that, you know, once you re-listen to it, or at least in my case, I did find a lot of interesting stories and blurbs that he discussed about that kind of blew my mind. So it wasn't my favorite episode, but still worth listening to nonetheless. Yeah. And I feel like going right back into the same Carlin episode to look to get more out of it is you'll always get more out of it, but you go in 
with this fuck yeah mentality. I'm going to get through all six and a half hours again. And then you're an hour in and you're like, I, I love this, but wow, I have a long ways to go. And uh, yeah. I've, I've tried it and I didn't always make it to the end either. So I give you a lot of credit. Just wanted to, I, so I had a moment in this and it rarely happens with Dan Carlin because usually I'm just, he's the master, I'm the student, I'm listening, I'm a disciple, I'm getting all that out of this that I can. And like you said, it was a little bit disjointed chronologically. I felt like it was more trying to give you a sense of who the Vikings were, uh, if you even can figure that out. I mean, just based on how large the diaspora was. But I had this almost like if I was drinking coffee, like a spit out the coffee laugh moment. Do you guys remember when he talked about the enemy's skulls and how they would drink out of them? Yeah, that when I was talking about toward the end of my little spiel, I was thinking of that one where they what split his skull and poured gold in and used it as a mug. That's pretty. That's pretty insane. I yeah. mean, I know they have they, that's metal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's super metal. I, there's so many like harsh and and gruesome descriptions in this episode that that was actually one that I you just reminded me of. Uh, the one that stuck with me was the meat wall that. The uh, the one guy built to yes. uh, just just of dead animals and and people to uh, and it was a successful wall uh, supposedly from what Dan was saying and that just blew my mind just the smell could you imagine just just piles of dead meat for I cannot know. I mean those are two moments that really stuck out in the sense that okay I'm a human they were human you know those are things that we have in common but everything else stops there these people were just built different and I think he really made that point hammer home when he's like, what do you do when you're drinking out of the skull of your enemy? Do you talk to it? And it made me think, I'm like, wait, what do you do? Like, I don't, I don't have any enemies, but like, I mean, you're, you're already kind of rubbing it in enough. I mean, I guess you would drink with the eyes facing you. So every time it's like, fuck you, but like, what do you do? I guess if you're lonely, you might. Yeah, it did, the Viking world does seem like it could be lonely, but also just super tight brotherhood. It, it seems like a pretty just it's very frat like in my from from like certain parts. It just felt like put the uh, the biggest like for the back of a better word, douchiest frat kids together in Viking times. And like, that's who they were. It was just a frat. They're just going out pillaging. Right. Wanting up one up in each other on how like crazy of a pillage they could get. Right. Yeah, and I forget the name of that gentleman from the uh, from the Muslim world who went over and was recording what it was like with that was folks crazy. that we weren't even sure were Vikings, I suppose, but so I guess they were they were the Rus potentially. Yeah. And like you said, frat boys just doing whatever the fuck they wanted when they were away from their lady folk was insane. Like the way they were treating slaves and how I mean, we romanticize Vikings a lot, and of course, it'd be terrible to be somebody who was a victim of them, but. A lot yeah. of the ways that they did profit was through enslavement, bringing back people from the raids. Wasn't the Muslim guy's uh, description, or he was from that you know far far away uh, area, just kind of visiting that area? Wasn't that uh, whole description about the funeral essentially, where they had this uh, one younger woman kind of just the sacrifice for when the chief died, and they would just kind of bring her around between the Vikings and like they raped her, and then they had the old woman who was like. Uh, they called her like the queen of death or something. And she's the old woman Lady strangled. Yeah. The, yeah. She strangled the sacrificial woman. I mean, it was just barbaric and very, very much, uh, you know, that sort of not Christian religion. What What's the word they always use for it? Pagan. Um, pagan. Yeah. The pagan sort of tradition like that, that sort of, yeah. 
sacrificial violence to the gods. It's just crazy. Yeah, it is for sure. And I don't love promoting a lot of things that I see on the History Channel because I think it's where history goes to die in a lot of ways or where it goes to do some ice road trucking here and there. I was, was going to say, his- the, those shows are such a, the way they turned in it. Because when we were growing up, like you turn it on and you'd see so many interesting documentaries. And that's all it was. And now it yeah. is just ice road truckers, pawn stars, ancient aliens. Yeah, they, of course, ancient aliens. It's a shame. I remember History Channel and the Military Channel is where I would go. Yeah, the know, military I, I'd, be, I'd be sitting there for hours watching things. But I, w- I will say History Channel's Vikings, super not accurate because they tried to put a lot of these guys who lived hundreds of years apart all living at the same time. But those some of those moments like that sacrifice of the woman to be with the their leader or whatever, they did – do some kind of recreations of those in that show. So as I listen to these series, I'm like, oh, you know, there there are some moments that, I mean, we'll never know if they're fully accurate, but they're at least trying to recreate some of the ways that these people would um would behave. Yeah, I thought it was also interesting. Like you kind of, and it was so hard to get a real grasp on it, but where the Vikings were butting up against like other sort of civilizations that you know of, like the the remnants of the Roman Empire in the East. I thought that was a really cool little nugget. Like I never really thought Vikings interacting with like the remnants of Roman Empire. Like I thought that was a really cool um, aspect of the history that I just pulled from the episode too. Yeah, that was, a, I, I liked that part a lot. That, that was one where I actually re-listened to that whole segment just because it was so cool. But like how they used to use what they were called like mothballs. Or they or Greek fire. It was like that. I don't even know how yeah, the Greek fire. Mm-hmm. Was, that's incredible. Like how they're still. He said that they're like modern historians don't even really know what it was made of, and like how Dan even said like even during like the creation of these mothballs, how they're like segregate. Like if you do this part of making it, like you'll never speak yeah. to this person. It's like the compartmentalization it. that you hear of about the, you know, if the government yeah. does know about aliens, it's like, okay, well, this guy's working on this part of the technology. So not, it's, it's compartment, classic compartmentalization of, of government. Like, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, it goes that back that far to Greek civilization. Yeah. Cool. Right. I'm glad that you brought that up. Cause I was just fascinated by that whole process as well. The way that if you, catch any one person responsible for making the greek fire they won't be able to tell you how it was made like it's i mean i guess families have certain recipes in their cookbooks that they keep confidential kfc is not going to leak their secret herbs and spices all right but we don't know how to recreate greek fire which was like a huge weapon that changed the tide of these battles in the favor of people who are getting attacked by massive armies and we don't know how the fuck they made it in the modern day I, i mean i think it really give some credit to people who lived thousands of years ago. I mean, they knew how to do a lot of amazing things, some of which we can't even replicate today. And not only just making the Greek fire, but executing it in style, like the description, how like on the he- uh, in the uh, bow of the ship, they would have the big like lion figure or other, you know, mythical creature figure and the fire would spit out of its mouth. Like that's some Lord of the Ring shit, right? Like that's cool. For what Who it's worth. It, yeah. In the second Game of Thrones book, Clash of Kings, they do replicate Greek fire. I think they call it something different, but they have this battle at King's Landing where I believe one of the the guys with a claim to the throne is is attacking with his naval fleet to try and essentially accomplish the same goal as the Vikings. And they use this. Uh, and I mean, I guess maybe some parallels that we could draw today are awful weapons like napalm and incendiary 
explosives sure. perhaps, but it's, it's just – and the thing I love about Dan Carlin too is he doesn't just explain how Greek fire is made. He explains what it's it could have been like to have been involved in that fight, which is absolutely horrific. I mean you can't even jump in the water because the water's on fire too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. The best, the best things about Carlin is just those quotes, the the firsthand accounts that he finds in in these historians that he references. Like, I'm a sort of novice. Like, I, I like history, but I'm not deep in the weeds. Like, I don't know these historians. So he's he, his research is incredible. Getting these firsthand accounts and it just really allows you to close your eyes and visualize some of these horrors. It's always a reminder that I wouldn't want to be alive at any other time than now. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, and then just uh, the other one of the other things that stuck with me, like how uh, earlier on in the story that he was telling, how easy it was for the Vikings to kind of just pillage those small, like monk villages. I mean, it was just pure, just just like just annihilation. Yeah, just looting. Like there was no fight. I mean that uh, that really must have put such a crazy imprint on the other you know peoples at those time, just living in fear like that unreal and then just a couple hundred years later you have people who are claimants to the throne in england who have direct ancestry to vikings right which is wild i mean do we want to talk about how that first started because i'm always fascinated by the guy who did it first which was i believe rollo with charles the simple yeah, I mean, you're saying the name and I'm like, um, my head's reeling, like trying to put the names back together. But I do remember like the king trying to make uh, an alliance with the Viking leader who basically was pillaging them to protect them from the other Vikings and just like cross your fingers, hope to die. He doesn't just keep pillaging us. Those like handshake deals that they were making. I mean, it just was a recurring story. So like I hear the name you're saying, but it just so I guess that's where it started. But it just some, some seemed like a revolving door in a sense. right? Yeah, for sure. But that, when that was discussed, that was to me, it was like, wow, look at the, like the desperation of the situation where that's like your best option is to, it's like that Spider-Man meme where there's three Spider-Mans pointing at each other. <laughs> it's kind of like that, where it's like, yes, you're my enemy, but you also need to protect me. It's like, yeah, it's, it's very hard to fathom, but what, what, what else could they do? It really is. And I thought that language of making the poacher the gamekeeper was a really nice way to put it. Right. it I remember that. It, I mean, Rollo really fascinates me because basically he was – and I, I didn't even notice that Normandy today, the lineage of that word linguistically is land of the Northmen. Yeah. Just allowing a, a Viking warrior to settle on – I mean, I thought it was almost brilliant. Like Charles the Simple, I thought they kind of undersold that guy because it was pretty clever in a way. Because it worked. He had a Viking settle on lands that he didn't even technically own. And now he's got this Viking there, converts him to his religion, which gives him even more control over him. And then that guy, as a result, of course, his people now are forced to convert to that religion. And then they also start to set up their own organized societies there with their families and things like that. And now they can't just be the badass pirates that roll in, raid, and then roll out. They have their own villages and their own women and children and animals and homes to protect. So it was kind of fascinating how that transition started to take place and it gave the Europeans that were just getting wrecked even a bit of an advantage in a way by cooperating with these people who would just, like you said, come up and raid and kill their people. 
I was just gonna say when right right when you right when you're saying like the Europeans were getting wrecked, he he talked about how like just prior to battle, how they would need to be taught like how to hold the shield. It's like <laughs> yeah, it reminds you of like the people uh, like the far right like militiamen like there's like. It's like you guys don't know how to use that. Like, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> come on, you guys don't look uh, intimidating. Yeah, it's like showing up to yeah. battle in like a baseball, like a catcher's mask or something like that. It's like right. They, it was just not even. They there. were doomed from the start. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It reminded me of that scene in Three Hundred where all those other kind of Greek hoplite type of so- soldiers meet up with the Spartans, and uh, he's like, "Oh, like you know, what do you do? Well, I'm I'm a farmer. Okay, what do you do? I'm a cobbler." And he's like, "Spartans, what is your reputation?" And then because they're all career soldiers, so that they they just shout. I don't want to recreate it here because I'd yell at my voice. They're probably cracking. It'd be embarrassing, but it reminds me of that. I mean, but but at the same time, it's also so interesting because a lot of these early Vikings would also tell you that they're farmers. This right. is, this is just what they do to show up and kind of fill their piggy banks every once in a while. Because they know they'll get paid off, and it's like a yeah. deal, uh, just deal with the devil. It's what the Europeans had to go through. Yeah, um, if, if I'm allowed to change subjects slightly, we got to talk about Olga. She yes, was wild. yes, we, we have to talk about Olga. She she was making me laugh, just luring those guys every time. Just like, oh, just chat. No, not this time. We're not going to kill you this time. Like, just come for a feast. Come, just come for a little feast. So I'm assuming our listeners have checked out this full Carlin episode at this point. I at least hope so. But can you explain the three – I believe it was three traps that she set, right, to get revenge for this group killing her husband? I only remember two of them. One was like they dug a huge pit and then essentially buried them alive. But that I think was after because didn't they – and also the way her first husband died was pretty crazy. It was like the birch tree, was it? And they'd split him in two, like they bent the tree back and then they would, then they split him in half. It's like, yeah. what a so, way to go. So basically uh, Olga, yeah. Olga was on just a revenge trip after her husband got killed by this group. And essentially she just was like, oh no, I'll, I'll marry your, your guy, even though you killed my husband, but you just come for a little feast, gets everyone drunk, then just burns the place down. And then they're all mad. And she goes oh, you know, I'm sorry, but this time, you know, we'll, and I think that's when she like buried them in the pit, somehow lured them in the pit, but it was just consistently promising to be nice and murdering them. And they didn't learn their lesson. It was just, it was almost hilarious. Yeah. I, think, I think the pit was first because the historian or, or the author of the saga, which we'll talk about the sagas in a bit, because those are kind of interesting in and of themselves, because it's like, this is the history, but some of these guys probably didn't exist. I don't know. Maybe you'll figure it out when you do some archaeological digs in a couple of years. Best of luck. But husband was murdered. First has some guys come as suitors and they get they wind up in a pit and they get buried to death. And then she has some people over to escort her to the country so that she can meet other suitors. And I guess information traveled slow. These people didn't know that they were going to get fucking killed too because <laughs> they hadn't heard about the pit. And she said, oh, why don't you take a bath when you, you know, you guys have been traveling a long time. Burns the fucking bath out to the ground. These guys burn to death. And then she goes to their place, gets them all shit-faced, and her men come in and kill them all. And apparently, I don't know if she did this intentionally or if this was the interpretation of the saga writer or the historian, but she reenacted each step of a Viking wedding writ large, which was fucking crazy to me. What I guess surprised me a little bit less is that the Catholic Church decided to make a person like that a saint. 
but you guys can weigh in on that if you want to. Unbelievable. (laughs) I love it. I love it. That was the beginning of, uh, you know, feminism, just saying that, you know, she was badass. Let's just give her one, you know? I mean, it's, I don't know, like, obviously, I mean, that's terrible, the things that she did, but she lived in a fucking horrible time. And I'm not excusing what she said, but if a biography were to fall into my lap about her, I'd definitely read it. Because, I mean, another interesting one is Queen Boudicca as well. The Romans killed her husband and she just went to war with them over that. Yeah, what's the saying? Like, uh, don't mess with a woman scorn. I mean, the wrath. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorn. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, the story was terrifying. That Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Because I'm thinking about myself and I'm like, I mean, you know, if I lived in that time, I'd probably have fallen for every single one of those things. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And everything's word of mouth, right? Like, it's just trusting. <laughs> yeah. Another thing I thought was interesting, and this is kind of what at least enabled me to give Dan Carlin a pass on the timeline. Cause like you guys, I was super mixed up in this and then he would jump in and he's like, all right, we're in the nine hundreds now. And I'm like, wait, dude, where were we for the last hour? Hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> but when he was talking about the actual process of converting these guys and how it wasn't necessarily seen as something almost like we would view religion in like Judeo Christian times where it's like, all right, I'm going to convert because I want to go to heaven when I die. And if I don't convert to this religion, then I won't get to have paradise in the afterlife. These guys were like, all right, tell me about your God. Tell me what he can do. If you can hold this hot stick I'll be- or this hot piece of metal, I'll believe in him because he's probably stronger than my gods if you can do that. And I'd like to worship him because he'll help me in the battle that I have tomorrow. I thought that was so interesting that it was like very transactional and direct. It was, what can you do for me now? You know? Yeah. And they so- believed that. that. I thought that was so interesting. Right. Yeah, to go back to that guy who got his skull split and poured and gold poured in it. I think it was his son because his name was Vladimir, right? The guy who's had like the gold skull thing. And then I think his son, Vyatislav, he was the guy that had like, you know, the leader of the Muslims, the leader of the Jews come in and, and they're like, you know, tell me about your religion. And then I think the Muslims were like, well, you, you can't eat meat and you can't drink. And he's like, but drinking's like part of like our culture. So then he shooed them away. <laughs> But that, then, was, that was a quick no. <laughs> yeah. But then when he went, well, when, the, when the Byzantines and Romans came and he saw like what they were, he's like, I don't know if this is heaven or earth anymore. Like that, like that was the reason why he attached to that. Or how like, I forget it, what um, he mentioned something about, I forget what battle it was, but like, but I, although I think it was maybe in the, it was like something like when they painted like a cross on their shield to, see if like if if their gods would win the battle and they did and they're like oh this is great so then we'll go with you guys yeah it was very much sort of like confirmation bias almost every time i think there was one little part where the crops were like great that year when they were praising christianity so they're like well this is it i guess it's like yeah it's a good year for crop like the weather was good (laughs) yeah yeah just pure confirmation bias uh kind of hilarious i think it was something that I think he might have used this term in the, the first Twilight of the Ace here as well, but that idea of the Tinkerbell effect, right. which I thought was absolutely fascinating. Even if it doesn't exist, it still can have an effect if everyone believes it exists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the trolls and the elves and it like, they're not real, but they are real in a sense because it's treated as real. It's like your perceptions, your reality. They're just the invisible folk. They're around us all the time. Yeah, you imagine 
little gremlins creeping out of the corner. I, I think a lot of people even today still can imagine. If if you look at different folklore traditions over in Europe, there are still people who have some of those old superstitions. And of course, living here in America, a lot of uh, our ancestors are transplants from Europe. So some of those traditions and ideas still kind of linger around today, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how different is it really from like angels and demons? Like, you know, you have people who are like, there's angels all around us. Like, like well, how different is that really? Yeah, I don't know. What about what his discuss? He cut like oftentimes he kind of takes takes kind of a, a detour in a way from like what his main points. But when he was talking about like circumventing or I shouldn't circumventing, but navigating the oceans and the and the seas and how most of the time they would just hug the coastline, but when they started to get more adventurous, the craziness of rogue waves, and he went through all of this. First-hand accounts of experiencing rogue waves, but that was more along the lines of, say, modern history with navigations and radios and whatnot. But he was saying, like, with the, those long ships and whatnot, having to battle the the waves and even these rogue waves, like just a random, huge, massive wave coming. How oftentimes that, he even made a mention of, I don't remember, it might have been a Danish fleet. But he said out of 36 ships that they that they went to sea with, only eight came back because of shipwrecks and how common those were. I just found it hard to believe. Like he, you always see those pictures or those videos or even like I'm sure they have them too in that show Vikings, like those oars sticking out from the side and rowing like that. Like how to navigate, especially in rough seas, like how to know where you're going. Or I just could not imagine. I'm really glad you brought that up. I, I was engrossed in that too. And I think at the end too, he even makes a mention of how somebody tried to track the population of Vikings as far as how many of them stayed in Scandinavia and were, you know, in Denmark and things like that, and then spread out to other parts of, you know, Western and Eastern Europe. And there was even, of course, clashes with the indigenous peoples of the Americas as well that kind of went about as well as it would in the Colombian days. But just factoring, I think he factored in how many people were alive, how many people were likely killed in these battles. And those numbers are always tough to really track down. And then how many people were lost at sea. And I think that it was it was a very comparable number to the amount of people that died in battle. So that, yeah, that was fucking wild. And the fact that they would navigate these oceans in these, I mean, long ships, almost, I mean, I feel like they're, they're almost akin to just super long, maybe a little bit more dugout canoes. These guys had no protection from the elements too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine. I mean, I grew up on boats and I the thought of that just being out on the open sea terrifies me. And I think they created a lot of like lore of like, I don't even, I, I'm not, I'm just going to make say Kraken, but like there's a lot of lore of like monsters and things out in the sea just because people disappeared. Like it, they just didn't know what happened. Like people didn't come back. So like, what are you going to, what else are you going to do? But create oral tradition around, you know, uh, unknown you know reasons yeah and that totally makes sense that a lot of just folklore and belief would come out of that yeah because people would just be gone Um, and you would have no idea i I thought it was interesting too that the whole phenomenon of rogue waves was almost like an old wives tale like a superstition that wasn't proved until a little bit more recently to to us than to the vikings because the people who experienced it they wouldn't they wouldn't fucking survive that they'd be done so No, that's that's a crazy part. How much they traveled, 
is extremely impressive. Like like I we've mentioned earlier, the, the reach of the Vikings, I didn't realize. I, I knew before this episode about them reaching the Americas vaguely and but then, I mean, they were in Asia, they were everywhere. It was it's it's really impressive when you think about it and how they had to do it. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I feel like you always enter into learning about the Vikings thinking that you know just how far and why they spread out, but turns out they spread out a lot far and a lot wider than you thought. Just out of curiosity, have you guys ever been out on the open ocean, like outside of the sight of land? Because I, I never have. And I know that when you do it, just from what I've understand, it's just a, you feel every, – well, everybody feels different when it happens to them for the first time. Yeah. On, I've been on a cruise or two out in the open waters and uh, especially when it's rough, it's like – it's it's sort of that feeling on the plane when you know you're in turbulence. It's like it's out of your control. Like you just hope everything's gonna be good. You know, yeah. it's a very I would describe it as a pretty similar feeling as in the air during turbulence, or like different. But I'm similar. sure you have too. But like even going out on like you know regular fishing boat like a like a family boat or whatever, like out 10, 15 miles. Yeah. Like even there, yep. I feel like that's even more of a somewhat comparable more comparable to what they've dealt with just because you're in a smaller boat but even still like you have radio you have navigation like it's it's so much easier to have that inner comfort versus yes it's just like getting that small taste of that feeling yeah in modern you can't even imagine i mean it's just sort of surrendering at that point to the seas right yeah and even with all of that i mean we've all watched the show um perhaps i haven't as much as a lot of other people because i can't recall the name but the show on Discovery yeah, with the folks who are in the crabbing industry. Yeah, deadliest catch. Yeah, that's I mean, that's yeah. still with all the technology that we have today, an insanely dangerous job. Yeah, out in the bearings. Those the, the the boat cams in those waves are some of the wildest videos you see, like the water crashing up uh, over the bow. I mean, the power of the ocean is is unmatched. Yeah, he I think he mentioned that fishing is still one of the most dangerous jobs you can have in the world. Because like all that stuff, like, yeah, we might have technology or whatnot, but all that stuff can still be fatal, like rogue waves and storms and like just, yeah, just because we have, you know, this modern technology doesn't mean that that stuff still doesn't happen. Yes. Just being on an open air longboat, literally just rowing with a bunch of other huge smelly hungry dudes. Yeah. And you also have no idea what the weather will be at least. And they didn't know where they were going. They were just going. Yeah. Pretty much. That's the mind-blowing part. Those first ones that struck out to see if there's (laughs) something else out there. They maybe heard rumors, but they don't know for sure. Yeah. Unreal. I'll stick to navigating rogue waves on um, the the Assassin's Creed Black Flag. Oh, that's that's where I'll stick with rogue waves. I don't want to I don't want to deal with them. Cause I I mean and and it's crazy too when it comes to warfare out on the ocean. And And I'm talking up to the modern day, because of course when it comes to any kind of military operation you're taking into account the terrain as well as the enemy that you're fighting on that terrain but with the ocean it's almost like i mean i I don't want to talk out of turn i'm sure somebody in the navy could speak to this a lot better than me but that's such an unpredictable terrain and it, it could almost act as like a second enemy or it could act as a really great ally like providing you cover of fog and things like that i know i think there were some military engagements in World War II where they really benefited from having that fog, you know, to, to mask their movements. But I don't know. It's, the, the ocean's so intriguing to me. Yeah. 
Uh, just uh, sl- uh, going off that topic, how about that that sort of piece where Dan was describing when they the kingdom sort of uh, I guess England area they finally got it together and like all right let's let's build a, a little navy here and they got like 16, 20 ships or something like that but they were sort of owned between some of the you know nobles between each other and then they just started infighting like they got this massive fleet together like let's go fight the Vikings and then they're just like. They got into a little argument, one or the other, and they just like, you know, fuck you. Let's just fight each other. And then it was just like six ships left. We're not fighting the Vikings anymore. They wasted all of like that time and resources when they finally got their act together, uh, like the whole kind of country and and worked together. Just just so pathetic. I thought that was such a shame. I could not imagine how frustrating that would be to coordinate something on that scale is, I mean, even to coordinate something on that scale today is tremendously difficult and they pulled it off and then it all just came unraveled before they could even get the freaking boats out and do anything what yeah that they, was insane what you were arguing about like what why did they start fighting with each other oh i don't know the egos of leaders i mean it's like does it even matter <laughs> it just came apart they finally had like a pretty good shot against fighting the vikings and uh just fought between each, each other some psyop, I guess, happened. The Vikings did a psyop. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially, hey, I mean, those probably those happen in the ancient world, right? Yeah, you know, he the other guy said you're fat. He's talking shit on yeah. you. <laughs> it almost reminds me of, I think, was it uh, Benedict Arnold when he went up to Fort Ticonderoga and they found like this other militia guy, and like n- like both of them were had like a sufficient. Uh, army behind them but no they couldn't decide who was leading and both uh, both sides armies was like all right we're gonna leave because you guys can't even score like <laughs> figure this out just generals are have so much yeah, so regardless much of the er- era too yeah, think of the egos so of like macarthur's of uh, oh the god. world and things like that oh god yeah, yeah. It's hilarious <laughs> but it's i mean yeah i mean it's just it's just such an interesting study of how these different folks tried to deal with the viking threat and how you know in the east it was a lot more difficult for these folks to pull off yeah um, what they were pulling off in the west but i mean when you really like i don't really know shit about the economy i I think mike this is probably somewhere where you can come in and chime in a little bit more but these ancient countries were paying off like these vikings with sizable percentages of their gdp just and and like it's like it is something that we can directly relate to here in America because that's why America formed a navy in the earliest days of its existence because they couldn't rely on the power of the British navy anymore and these Barbary pirates were just completely ripping them off and the United States like under Washington, Adams, Jefferson were doing the same thing paying off a significant portion of their GDP to these pirates and it's just not financially feasible after a while. Yeah, those the description of like the increase in silver that they had to pay off the Vikings each year was pretty wild. Like it was exponential. When you're measuring it by the ton, that's how you know it's yeah. it's gotten it's gotten too bad. They had a whole system for it on horse and carriage just to carry it. Like there was a whole like industry of just moving the silver. <laughs> yeah, the I well to bring it back to that guy with a gold skull again. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> But it, 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 it ties in so often because like the reason why they killed him and did that, if memory serves, was because he then went back and asked for more. Like yeah. he went, hey, sorry, we're going to have to like increase your taxes or you know increase our costs. 
with the huge army. Then when he was walking back, he was like, you know what? Went with a couple guys back. And then when he at, demanded even more, that's when they killed him. Greedy, greedy, greedy. There's something else to, oh, this was in the beginning part too, but it is kind of, I mean, right when Dan said this, I, I immediately thought of the movie Avatar with like how the uh, ancient tribe or whatever you want to call them had that like magical tree. And he was saying like how in Germanic cultures, like regardless of where they were, somehow they managed to incorporate trees as like the mode in which to communicate with their gods and whatnot. Like even in the first one, like if you remember that guy, I love his name too, Lebwin. And when he would be that, I think it was like a Christian missionary or whatever through, um, oh my gosh, what is his name? It was Charlemagne. And now he would chop the people's tree down to like to get their attention. And then he was like, could you imagine like having that happen to you? But it's just funny how even if they don't talk to one another, somehow everyone knows that like the trees are the ones that speak. It's kind of kind of cool. And it's also one of those moments where I can't imagine what that would be like to happen to you. Like, like I just can't think of something that I'm so invested in that's so much larger than myself and anybody around me that I know that I could just watch somebody knock it down and destroy it before my eyes. I can't imagine. And you're just, you're just helpless. You just can't do anything but watch. And it was crazy too when – and I'm going to bring in – and Olaf here, and we're all going to kind of have big question marks popping above our heads. Which one? Uh, the first, apparently. Um, I doubt that, though. There's probably a million and one Olafs before this guy. This was just the guy to get in the, the history books first, maybe. Who's doing it to his own people. That guy that they nicknamed Christ's Best Hatchet Man. <laughs> and I thought that was so interesting because, I mean, we definitely put a high premium on on faith in this country. I mean, there are a lot of Republican politicians in recent memory and, and to the modern day who have to kiss the ring of all these evangelicals and people all over the spectrum of flavors of Christianity, as I like to call it. But it was amazing how when one of these leaders would be converted, you not only had that guy in the bag, you had all the people in the bag. And then the way that that religion would just be so focused on salesmanship and spreading the religion, you also knew that that guy was going to not only take it to his people, but his people were going to take it even further. And it was such a good way of kind of controlling these people by not only destroying their beliefs, but bringing them under this common flag of uh, the same religion. Yeah. He, it was funny too, how he was saying, like, even though they would adopt a new religion, some leaders would hedge their bets. He said like one guy, like, killed a thousand people in the name of Christianity. And then he did another thousand for his old gods as well to kind of like, <laughs> yeah, just in case, yeah, just in case or how, like even say they're like the leader converts and the his people convert just because they converted. It doesn't mean like, yeah, they might be believing about the new or believing the new religion on paper, but they might also be worshiping the old people as well as that like takes time to like fully integrate the new religion in, amongst these people. It's not just a light switch. Right. And oftentimes you have to tweak your message so that it'll make sense to the people that you're delivering that message to. Mm -hmm. And we could even, I mean, I think we could even see that in, um, in Christmas because that's, that's Chris, say. yeah, cause we, I'm pretty sure we know for a historical fact that Jesus was not born on December 25th, but How the, dare. The, the Christians that were trying to, yeah, sorry if that 
uh, burst your bubble there. Uh, <laughs> but the Romans were trying to, or not the Romans, uh, the, the Christians were trying to convert the Romans to, to their faith and stop their pagan worship. And so they kind of, I think they combined it with a holiday called uh, Sol Invictus, which had a lot to do with the shortest days of the year ending and things only getting brighter. And so they use that idea of, well, Jesus is the light of the world. He's God's son. He's the one who died so that we could all go to heaven. So he made everybody's eternity so much brighter. And they kind of use that to weave in their message to make sense with what the people had already believed. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Have you uh have you ever heard of like going off of like the Christmas symbolism and the tree and whatnot uh, about like the presence and where that comes from like shiny wrapping paper under the tree potentially because uh, Christmas trees are pine trees right and Amanita muscaria mushrooms are the classic red capped mushrooms with the white polka dots on them they grow under those types of trees and so like theory is that you know and those are hallucinogenic that that kind of like ties into that that sort of lore of like Christmas presence under the Christmas tree, like the bright, like red coloring and stuff like that. You, you I guys ever heard of that? that? No. I, well, I'm not saying it's true. I just, no, I know theory. it's a theory, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I've never heard of that. That's, yeah, I thought that's that really interesting. interesting. Yeah. So you never know how that stuff just gets weaved in, but yeah, slowly incorporating those two religions over time, obviously some of those pagan traditions kind of leak into the Christian stuff and you just get this, you know, hybrid sort of thing that comes out of it. Not, not to further deviate from what we're saying, but that whole cutting down the Christmas tree. You ever heard that Jim Gaffigan thing where uh, his wife comes in and is like, honey, why is there a pine tree in our living room? <laughs> I've not heard that. But and he's like, shut up. I'm doing it for Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, honestly, who knows? But that that theory is fascinating. I, could, I mean, I could, I, I could see it being a thing. Yeah. One of the really colorful figures that I enjoyed hearing about was Harold Finehair. Or, or, or yeah, I, he had a ton of nicknames. Um, and there's Forkbeard, Sven Forkbeard, like all those guys. <laughs> yeah, but Harold Finehair, this according to the sagas, which I, I would love to read the sagas of Snorri. They sound really interesting. But I guess there may be, I don't know, is is the histories by Herodotus? like a little bit more believable than the sagas perhaps. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's maybe the sagas are more comparable to like Homer, but I, I really, I had to admire Harold Finehair, And I think William Shakespeare missed the opportunity to make a tragedy romance about him because the sagas, according to the sagas, all that land that he conquered, all those people he killed, it was basically because some woman said to him, look, I know that you got a crush on me, but, you're gonna to need to be a little bit more of a little bit, a little bit more of a big man about the world before you get to uh, date me or whatever it was. Um, so that just kind of made me think, like, guys, I mean, how far would you go to get a girl? I mean, maybe it's a tale as old as time, right? She's she's got to be something, huh? To to be like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go over here and make an empire. I'll be back, you know, and I'm gonna make sure that. I have your hand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was pretty simple back then. It's just, you just take shit right now. It's like, you got to learn how to code, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing, right? I mean, <laughs> try to get the bag to impress the lady, I guess. I, yeah. I don't, how different is it really? It's just the, the method that he, the method that uh fine hair had to get there was a little bit different than, uh, you know, Bill Gates 
But regardless, super thirsty. <laughs> super thirsty. And I guess we're permitted to get haircuts in the meantime, whereas Harold was like, all right, so I'm going to conquer an empire and I'm not going to get a haircut until I do. So just wait here. I'll be back. Yeah, it was a while, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, like, I kind of I mean, my hair's not even that long right now and I kind of start getting bugged by it. So incredible yeah. props to him. And I, and I guess it, it was a nice mane. Had a good head of hair, so. Yeah. Well, guys, it was awesome to have you back on to talk about Twilight of the Aesir, Dan Carlin's uh, conclusion, I guess, to that series. I mean, I still need to go back and listen to Thor's Angels because I still feel like I need more context because right. I know that this was a sequel to an earlier series that he had done. But I'm always – when he ends a series and then I have to wait six months to figure out what he's going to do next, I'm always – Super curious about what he's thinking about. Yeah, I know he describes it as what, like kind of going into the hole, going into the bunker and just figuring out, you know, what he's going to do and then just cutting himself off from all people for a while. So yeah. I, I just, I wonder what the next one's going to be about. I feel like he thrives oftentimes in the ancient world. But I mean, like we talked about on the previous one, his uh, Supernova in the East was amazing. I know, I think Mike, you and I are big blueprints for Armageddon people. As our favorite. So (laughs) I am curious to see what he comes up with next. But you have a prediction? Because I mean in ancient world, he's covered the Celtics, right? Yeah. And what else? Maybe he could do a Napoleonic War one. That would be pretty cool. That that would be interesting. Like a six part series about that. But just before I forget, the one thing though toward the end of this that I am keeping my eye out for is that he's now doing Q and A and public speaking gigs. He said he went to one in LA. One in New York and one in – I think New York is one of the few East Coast but ones because I know he's Pacific Northwest based. But he was saying how like just kind of, these are just kind of intro ones. And if I find it hard press that it won't be met with a lot of demand. Right. But he's like, if there is, we'll go to do more tours and whatnot. That'd I'd, be cool. I'd love to go with you guys. I, I would love – I haven't been to Kansas City yet. Missouri, Great barbecue. But, Best barbecue yeah, so in the world. Yeah. But that's where the World War One Museum is. And that's Ooh. where his like World War One like immersive experience is. Oh, oh right, I forgot about that. Yeah, you imagine walking through a museum with Dan though, just a day. Oh yeah, just I know. Day, that be... Just a day in the museum with Dan. I, I think I forget what it's called. I'd walk through a Starbucks with him. I mean, just yeah, like and talk like about to... Starbucks. Like just just I would listen to him read a grocery list. I mean, it really is genuinely. That's... He's just so compelling of a speaker. I've actually Absolutely. never seen him without a hat on. Huh. That's a really good point. Yeah, I haven't either. You know when like oh, man, his what is brain's exposed because it's yeah. so big. No, but what's right. that? It's like the uh, is it from a movie or television show? And like someone's brain showing, and they put it on, uh, like put a hat on. Oh, I remember, like um, Joe Dirt. Remember when apparently like his yeah. skull is showing? And Megan Family Guy, they did oh. that. Yeah, that's why, that's why Meg always wears the hat because the brain's exposed. <laughs> I'd like to not think that's what Dan's yeah, on, but, but it's probably just who does? just comfort. Hey, I always wear a hat too. All right, guys, it was a pleasure as always. I know we'll see each other before the next Dan Carlin comes out. Thanks so much for having us, Ryan. Yeah, it was awesome. Chris, did you just want to promote um, anything before you? I don't, I don't want people to miss out on the chance to get to see a lot of awesome art. Yeah, so I mean, I've been really focusing on trying to paint the last like six months. I've been really proud of the painting progress I've made. So if you want to check out any of my art and, uh, you know, if you want a tattoo, I'd love to do one. Cowbell Pokes on Instagram. That's cowbell with a K. And, uh, yeah, follow my art journey. I, I think it's been uh, – I've learned a lot. And, and hopefully uh, you guys like the art that I make because I do. 
Yeah, you definitely see it. Um, Kevin and I have, as a lot of you might know, I'm doing a weekly show now following the 2024 election. So when it came to doing some art to represent that, we of course turned to Chris here. And so we are looking forward to premiering that art. We're going to wait until Christmas to open it, which is always really painful. We did the same thing last year when you did some awesome art for us for Vietnam, which is still one of my favorites that you've ever done. So really looking forward to opening that. This is the biggest painting I think I've done. It's a huge canvas uh, compared to anything I've done. So yeah, uh, it was was a fun uh, challenge. So I hope you guys like it. I like it. And as soon as it came in and it's like, we're putting this on the wall and I'm like, yeah. And if there's ever an Almost Presence podcast studio, it'll be hanging up there too. (laughs) I wouldn't doubt it one day. You guys are doing great. All right. Well, I will see you guys later. And uh, folks, you will hear from Kevin and I multiple times this week. Actually, we got our newest episode in the Samuel Tilden series dropping as well as our weekly program. And then you'll hear from us soon on our holiday fun show. So we look forward to it. Thanks for listening. And we hope that you enjoyed the show. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is thealmostpresidentspodcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.